Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On our show today, our guest is Ruth M. Glenn, the CEO and president of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. She's here with us today to talk about the work she does at the NCADV and to debunk commonly held myths of survivors and abusers and how survivors and advocates like herself can play a vital role in the crafting of a national narrative in this work that is inclusive, empowering, and impactful. We will be speaking with Ruth about the NCADV's role in the creation of the Disarm DV website and partnership, which will address gun violence prevention and reform in America, the role of the media in reporting on domestic violence, and in particular, its role in gun violence, and her thoughts on the intersection of race, class, and gender, as it has played out in the NFL's DV and kneeling policies. So thank you, Ruth, and welcome to our show. Thank you. So I want to get started by reading the NCADV's mission, which states that the NCADV is the voice of victims and survivors. We are the catalyst for changing society to have zero tolerance for domestic violence. We do this by affecting public policy, increasing understanding of the impact of domestic violence, and providing programs and education that drive change. So I want to break down each of these components. Catalyst for changing society to have zero tolerance for domestic violence. In your organization's opinion, what is the definition of domestic violence? The definition of domestic violence is the desire of one person to have and maintain control over another through different forms of abuse, uh, coercion, threatening, harassing, and really causing harm to another person in all of its forms. Okay. And... Many people have taken issue with the word domestic because it renders the acts and incidents of abuse personal and relegated to the private sphere only. Do you agree with that? And if not, what are the social impacts of us tolerating it being in that realm only? I do not agree with it. I think that there could be many other terms used, but we talk about that because in the context of this type of violence, there is some kind of relationship. And so when I think about the term domestic, I think about it as in regards to the relationship and not necessarily the private versus public. I do know that there are a lot of conversations about what does domestic violence mean? What does family violence mean? And what does intimate partner violence mean? And I mean, the list goes on and on. But I think when we talk about what our goal is is here and our mission here, we remain with the term domestic violence because we are also understanding a society that's quite patriarchal and not always operating, quote unquote, in the best interest of women. And so we, we have chosen consciously to stick with that term for those reasons. Okay. And so let's turn to the part of your mission which is providing programs and education that drive change. I'm guessing part of the need to drive change 
are some of the common myths around gender-based violence. So I want to turn right now to some statistics on your site. Uh It lists on your site, in this country, 10 million people are physically abused by a partner every year. There are 20,000 calls placed a day to domestic violence hotlines. 20% of women in the United States have been raped. And there are 175 gun-related fatalities this year. This was as of April 13th, 2018. So that number doesn't include the casualties or the number of people injured, only just fatalities. What do you think is behind these numbers? In other words, what are some of the root causes of domestic violence, in your opinion? Sure. So first of all, I'd like to note those numbers. You know, numbers are numbers and they're stats. But I don't care which way you shake those numbers. is still very alarming. Um, that we have that many people in this nation who are impacted one way or another by domestic violence, whether it's fatalities or quote-unquote assault or whatever it is. I still go back to what I said a few minutes ago, which is I still believe we have a society that does not understand domestic violence, quite frankly, may not want to understand domestic violence, and we have a society that's still very much rooted in a patriarchal perspective. I think men are encultured to some degree in a way that is harmful to women and children. And I want to be very clear. I do not believe that all men are abusive. I do not believe that all men subscribe to a patriarchal moray. That is not at all what I believe. But I do believe that there are enough men who are in culture to this that it still results in these numbers that we see. So I appreciate that you say that because many of the guests that we've had on the show so far have alluded to the systemic reasons and factors that contribute to, you know, either the silencing of victims or the systemic enabling through policy or practice or culture. And And yet some of the leaders in this area that I've met in working in government have Mm -hmm. questioned what the root causes are. So that's been very concerning to me, but I feel very relieved that you're, you're sharing my view that this is a systemic issue that we need to address from that perspective. Oh, yes. So let's move on to some of the tools that you use in your training in the programs and education that you offer. First of all, what are some of the tools? Do you talk about, for example, systemic oppression? Is it from, you know, do you talk about intersectionality or is it, you know, are you starting with the power and control wheel? What what exactly are they? I think it depends on what the needs of our particular audience are at any given time. Our webinars are usually focused on emerging issues such as, you know, intersectionality issues, strangulation issues, whatever the emerging issue at that time might be. We try to keep a close ear to our membership and and try to hear what they think their needs are because our membership is mostly made up of advocates. So we, we try to listen to them and present and provide what it is that they most need or have an interest in. Of course, we always provide a domestic violence 101, which is really around the dynamics of domestic violence, the power and control will, you know, all of that. You know, quite frankly, it just depends. And then, of course, you know, at our conference, we have a myriad of issues that we deliver. So it just really depends on what the needs that are being addressed at that point are. So would it be accurate to say that most of the 
groups that you work with in terms of providing training and education, they come to you voluntarily seeking that? Or are there other groups that may need it (laughs) that actually you reach out to to initiate those conversations? You know, we don't reach out to a lot. We have a fairly large membership. Our focus is on advocates who, who serve in domestic violence programs. And so we always feel like we're talking to the people that can make a change the most for victims in our society because they're advocates. Um, it is very rare that we reach out to someone. We may have somebody call us and say, you need to talk to so-and-so because they've got a real problem. And they've asked us, you know, what might they do, but we don't have the capacity or the knowledge base or whatever it might be. That is not as common as, as the other approach. I see. You also partner with a variety of organizations to provide financial education training to survivors. Why, uh-huh. why is that important? Well, anybody in this in this work knows that one of the most powerful tools in a domestic violence situation is an abuser having control over finances and or disallowing the victim survivor to have too much input on finances. So the idea of this particular training, which our largest partner is the National Endowment Fund at MIFI. They've been our partner for a very long time. And what we do is provide the fundamentals of it, of financial education. We do everything from budgeting to what's your retirement plan, really providing resources and tools to victims and survivors um, who can better manage their finances, particularly now that they have begun their journey to safety. So I guess that is limited in some way, would you say, by the resources, both economic and educational that the survivors may have because systemically we don't have equal pay in this country. We don't have paid family leave and affordable child care. So there, there are going to be other challenges to really helping a survivor create a sustainable pathway to, to economic security. Would you agree? You know, I would agree almost to all of that with a caveat that please let us not forget that we have survivors that are not economically challenged quite frequently. You know, we have a survivor who's the one that is the breadwinner. She needs to know how to make sure she divests all of the the money away from the abuser or, you know, that kind of thing. So yes, for the most part, I'm always very thoughtful that we don't pigeonhole or overlay a particular profile on survivors because they really do come to us from all, and particularly in our financial education classes, mm-hmm. webinars. And is the NCADV involved in policy at all and moving forward these initiatives in the policy realm? Absolutely. We have three prongs to our work is, is what I like to refer to. And one of those prongs is policy. We have a satellite office in Washington. The person in Washington is absolutely our pulse and lets us know if there are policies and laws and or other actions that are being taken in our nation's capital that could or would impact victims and survivors. And that can be everything from housing to funding, just depending on, you know, what's happening at the moment. You know, it's great to hear that. Thank you for that work. I'm often quite puzzled when government entities that I've come across take a very siloed approach 
towards um, providing services to survivors and, you know, they route the survivor, you know, to a shelter if, if, if it's applicable or to healthcare, you know, or to mental health and, and those kinds of support services. But there's not been this holistic set of services that a survivor can go to. I mean, I guess family justice centers vary across the country, but it, it doesn't work the way that I'm envisioning where you can, you know, go to one place, one-stop shop and have all that your needs met basically. So is that a paradigm that people believe is worth pursuing? And are there efforts to actually fund and develop those kinds of services and programs? Quite frankly, I believe that there are efforts. I think that anything that needs to move through government or Congress moves so slow that it's hard to see it sometimes. But yes, I I do believe that there are some efforts being made, whether they're comprehensive enough and how soon we'll really begin to realize that in our actual practice. I don't know. I just don't know because everything moves so slow. Mm-hmm. And is it just the buy-in to that kind of approach, or is it because nonprofits right now are very siloed in the, what they offer, and so it's hard to coordinate services across different organizations? You know, I would say that it's both. Quite frankly, um, I I would say that there's a lot of siloing because of turf issues. You know, I won't have you encroach on my area of work and what will it mean to collaborate and then do I lose, do we lose our autonomy and do we lose what we have built from the ground? I mean, there's all of those kinds of things. But I also think that we still have a lack of understanding about what violence against women is. And most of our lawmakers, quite frankly, are those who haven't experienced violence against women or haven't been oppressed. And so when you're asking them to make the decisions about that, there's a huge disconnect. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> so I, I want to turn now to some national trends that hopefully you can speak to in terms of rates of domestic violence in certain occupations. There are certain groups of people who commit higher rates of domestic violence than others, and one group is law enforcement. So two studies have found that at least 40% of police officer families experience domestic violence, in contrast Uh to 10% of families in the general population. Moreover, when officers know of domestic violence committed by their colleagues, and seek to protect them by covering it up, they expose the department to civil liability. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, police response to domestic disturbance calls account for, I think, the highest proportion of police-related fatalities. So it seems to me that there's a link here that's worth exploring. And what are your thoughts about that? OIDB is a very tricky thing. But this also lends itself to another part of our mission that if we're not holding abusers accountable, no one loses but the entire society, whether it's a police department that's being sued because they didn't do enough to protect a victim, whether it's the victim themselves who has either been hurt very badly or killed, or our society who we already have distrust issues with. And if we learn that cops in our local police department get away with domestic violence, what else I mean, how else can we trust them? I do believe that it goes back and on the second piece of that, which is, you know, police officers committing that high amount of domestic violence. I do believe that because 
of the nature of what we ask police to do. And I want to be very careful because I don't think all policemen are bad, not even close, but they are encultured to be strong, to be this, to be that. If you're raised in that and then it continues into your adulthood and it's part of what you have to be to be on a particular police force, I don't think that it helps. You know, it helps us as a society to help police departments and leadership and police departments to understand that you have to be very thoughtful and careful about that because then you're almost giving police officers permission to do those types of things. Right. I mean, part of the reason I asked that question is because it begs the question of, as you referenced, how can survivors trust the system and turn to the system? So to the extent that those numbers are most likely underreported, I would think there's, you know, it, it would be even more underreported than the general public because of the risk involved for the people in those kinds of relationships. You know, it, to me, makes us want to address, you know, the relationship between gender and race and some of the problems that we've had as a society with how police has, you know, disproportionately treated black and brown people and men in particular. I think those are things that are worth exploring and yet there's not really a space to do so. So I'm wondering if that's something that your organization might might have done in the past. Might That was a group that I was thinking about in terms of doing outreach and training. Does your organization provide resources or education to those kinds of groups? You know, we don't do outreach. We are very aware that there are a couple of other entities that do provide outreach to those groups. And that's, for instance, the International Associations of Chiefs of Police. They work very closely with the Office of Violence Against Women on providing those types of trainings about, you know, leadership responsibility when it comes to violence against women. What, do you, what should your policies look like on um, those kinds of things? And then, of course, the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence. If I'm not mistaken, they also have an area that they devote to that. So when they come to us, we absolutely will provide that to them. I see. What about other organizations? This is very timely now with the news from today, but uh, organizations yeah. like um, the NFL, you know, it, I came across an article, which I was surprised about that there was a study conducted in July of 2014, where 538 looked at NFL arrests in the USA Today database. And mm-hmm. the researcher concluded that NFL DV rates were less than half of the general public's, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, given how much attention the media gives to the, these incidents, it's, it was really surprising to me. But I, I guess my question is, you know, in terms of the NFL and other groups that have a lot of visibility and cultural sway, where members of those groups are well-respected icons, you know, in popular culture and potentially models of masculinity for our boys and young men, what are your thoughts on, you know, the current situation with the NFL, which is really, again, intersectional in its response around police brutality and its new policy around kneeling before games? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the double standard that I think a lot of people have pointed out on Twitter these past few days with regard to how they haven't taken such a strong stance around domestic violence. Right, right. 
So I have a couple of thoughts, you know, because I, I was definitely stunned by that as well. As a woman of color, I cannot tell you how it upsets me. As a, a First Amendment right person, I cannot tell you how much it upsets me. But it's almost like an incongruent message. You know, it says there's accountability here, but it's only accountability when it might hurt our bottom line. And that's the message I got out of that. We do have a relationship with the NFL in that they have have supported us on occasion. And quite frankly, it's been the NFL foundation. It has not been the NFL. So it always bothers me that some of these decisions are being made in these very narrow perspectives. I think any professional sports organization, and some of them have, that comes forward and says, how can we do this better? We're willing to help them. We assisted the NFL as well as some other organizations a couple of years ago when not the Ray Rice necessarily, but some other things that had come up. And what I would like from, from professional sports organizations to look at the totality of, of their organization and how they can do better if they don't just focus on the bottom business line. Because I'm, I'm quite certain that they have many, many variables that they have to consider when they're making these kinds of decisions. You know, they have, they have boards and they have, you know, all of these things. But what is the greater good? And I think they've missed that in violence against women. I really do. Yeah, yeah. And and I was actually thinking there were parallels that were drawn online, um, you know, through Twitter sphere between the sort of policing of women's bodies and the policing of the players' bodies. I haven't confirmed this, but before our conversation, I think I saw something that updated the policy. I, I don't know if you've confirmed this either, but the policy has, I think, been updated so that players are even prohibited from staying in the locker rooms now. Oh, God. <laughs> so I yeah. hopefully that's not true. But anyway, so what, what are your thoughts about that, those kinds of parallels? And, and what can we do if we're unhappy with these kinds of policies as citizens and as fans? You know, I, I think there are a myriad of things that we can do. Of course, we can boycott, you know, and of course, we can stand behind the players. And of course, we can do all of those things. I, I do think that silence is acquiescing. I really do. But what does using our voice mean? Well, it means that if you're making a decision based on your bottom dollar line, then we'll have to address it with you where you're at, which is your bottom dollar line. I hope we don't have to do that, but if that's what we have to do. I do think that we should be more vocal about, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're being very, very clear about this issue that really is centered on a First Amendment right. But what about the rights of women to be safe and supported when they do come forward? Where are you at with that? If you're so vocal and so clear and you have such a clear policy about that, then where are your other policies on players who, in, who not just violence against women? I mean, you have players that get DUIs and are you telling me that not standing for the flag is more important than these other things that harm society? I don't understand that. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people share your opinion. So uh, the debate continues. 
So actually, just just to summarize in training and education, are there any metrics that you use to measure success of your training education to the advocates that you provide the training to? Are, are there ways to measure if they're better able to assess DV in the clients that they serve or if there's some way to measure prevention and the cost of prevention or safety metrics? I'm curious if there's anything that you use. You know, we don't have anything currently in place. Funny you should ask because we are working towards that. And in fact, we're looking to have a really deep conversation about that next week, I believe it is. I'm sorry, I don't know. But it is what we're working toward. We have done a complete restructuring. And so a lot of our things have had to be redone or we relook at it and try to figure out where we need to go next. So no, I I guess the bottom line is no, we don't have anything currently. We are definitely looking at what can we do to, to provide that measurement. Okay. You know, I think that would be helpful because there have been a lot of social impact investors, non-traditional investors outside of the philanthropic space and outside of government, you know, who are interested in investing and supporting these causes. And I think for them, the question is, you know, how do I measure my quote unquote return? And and, and so I think, you know, you're definitely on the right track and I'm sure um, social impact investors would be happy to hear and they're going to hopefully keep an eye out for those so they could be in touch. Absolutely. So I'd like to turn now to some of the public policy work that your organization is involved in. I, I have to say that I really appreciate the leadership role you've had in, you've taken in speaking out in your social media presence about various events that happen, which I don't really see so much from other organizations, which I'm guessing might be because it could be construed as political, but I really appreciate that you've done it. And especially around mass shootings and the way that the media has reported on these crimes, very often with the killer as you know, using language where the killer, you know, is in the passive mode as victim of some neglect, you know, as we've seen with the Santa Fe high school incident last week. And he's the one who's the victim of, you know, being spurned by the young lady that he ended up killing. And in fact, the LA Times was rebuked for its headline that that said, quote, Texas school shooter killed girl who turned down his advances and embarrassed him in class, mother says. While a Twitter respondent tweeted back, quote, you flubbed this headline. It should read, Texas shooter killed girl he harassed for months, unquote. So what, yeah. So what do you think of the way the media, you know, reports on domestic violence and in general and in mass shootings and their connection to DV and and also with murder suicides, which happens a lot. What kind of responsibility does the media have to get it right, and what can they do better? This is one of the things I feel so strongly about, and, and the first thing I'd like to say is thank you for for noting because I believe very strongly that if we don't continue to confront society through media, through social media, and say you're getting it wrong, here's the way it is, then we're not going to see a change. I take on media quite frequently, and I do it with all diplomacy and with an understanding that they sometimes just don't get it. 
it really is not always because of any other reason than their lack of knowledge or understanding. So it's our job to call them up or to tweet them or to email them or to Facebook them and say, I think that was not a lovesick teen. That was a young man who was hell-bent on having control over someone. And, you know, this is domestic violence. This is violence against women. And if, if we don't call it that, then we're going to see more of it. And, and I like it, helping them to become a part of the solution and helping them understand what a role and critical role they play. That's why we also speak out against this administration that does not seem to want to do anything to change the status of women and children in this country. And we speak out against that because they are not a part of the solution of getting us to a different place. Well, do you think that journalists who cover domestic violence, but violence in general, should be trained they should attend your trainings as the advocates do so that they have at least access to a common language and understanding and a lens through which they can view, you know, trauma and the incidents that happened without blaming the victim, without judging and without re-traumatizing, you know, the people that they're interviewing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I'm hoping is that at our conference in September, we're going to have a media listening session where we're going to invite members of the media. Who knows? You know, we may have one show up, we may have 10 show up, but we want to have that opportunity for them to hear from us about what some of the issues are in the way that they retell these stories. There are storytellers. And if they're not getting it right, we're not going to, you know, it's very much like what you said about football, the NFL. They're social influencers, whether they like it or not, they help shape culture. And if you're not shaping it in a way that really takes into account the special issues and challenges that women or children are facing, then you're not a part of the solution. So my hope is, is that this will be, if it works out that way, that this will be our first opportunity to speak with them. And then hopefully we can institute a really good training and or educational forum for them. Yeah, I'm definitely going to make sure that I'm through social media, letting them know about this conference and letting all the journalism schools know. I think anybody who's starting in this career path, if you're interested in in anything, I mean, these days, pretty much violence touches all, you know, communities, whatever your beat eventually. So um, they sh- I recommend all journalists and journalism students to, to go to the NCADV conference in September, right? You said. Right. Yes. Okay. September and Rhode Island. Great. So we'll we'll make sure that we have that in the show notes. Well, just extend a little bit on the issue of gun violence. The NCADV has been very vocal about the laws that govern access to guns and how differing policies across the country impact domestic violence victims and survivors. And in fact, you have joined with three other organizations recently to form a partnership launching this fall officially called Disarm DV. Can you talk about the relationship to DV and gun violence and what your partnership is trying to accomplish? Absolutely. We're very excited because we have joined partnerships with Education for Gun Violence Prevention, with the Alliance for Guns out of uh, Seattle, Washington, Prosecutors Against Gun Violence, and uh, hopefully very soon another entity once they get permission, to develop a website that will really help victims and survivors and advocates and layman's terms figure out what they need to do in their own 
region, jurisdiction, community to be better informed about domestic violence and guns and how they can make sure that they're safe, but also do what's best for a victim or survivor in regards to abusers relinquishing their guns and how can systems best remove those guns. It has become more and more apparent that we're losing way too many lives, but particularly the lives of women as a result of that horrible intersection between domestic violence and guns. If there's a gun present in a domestic violence situation, it's 500 times more likely that a woman is going to die in a domestic violence incident. We're losing on average, and we estimate anywhere between three and four women a day as a result of firearms and domestic violence. It's very disturbing. And there are things that we can do about it. We can make sure that abusers don't have access to guns and that when they've been asked to relinquish them because they've been adjudicated, that the gun is gone. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That background checks are more extensively done so that even the little blip that says, you know, he got three months slap on the wrist, I'm making that up. The background check will pull that up and then we know that this person should probably not have a gun. So there are several things that we hope to accomplish with this and quite frequently also including raising awareness about those that are losing their lives as a result of domestic violence. So yeah, it seems to me that more and more, it's mainly this past year um, around mass shootings that there's been more reporting in the media around the history of the shooter, whether, you know, having some sort of domestic violence background for the mass shootings or in, you know, in Canada with the involuntary celibate, you know, groups having some sort of exhibiting some sort of toxic, quote unquote, toxic masculinity. And so it's heartening to me that this is now being more and more reported, but can you talk about what the relationship is between mass shootings and history of either toxic masculinity or domestic violence that's been inadequately addressed in the past? Right. So I think when we put that all together, it really goes back to what I still consider to be a culture of this nation um, and our world, quite frankly. But, you know, we can point to our own United States and our nation that says this, this nation is still steeped in patriarchal values, patriarchal mores, does not have an understanding of women and children and their value. We're less valued. So when you look at that, and then you look at the idea that when an abuser has lost control of those women and children that he believes he should have control of, and you have that he has access to a weapon, and the chances of him having access to his victim are very slim at this point. He's escalated because he's lost control. So what is the next step? I firmly believe that that's when we see mass shootings. I firmly believe that it's the inability to access the victim anymore in a way that's that's controlling and the desire to have control. And, you know, a lot of these mass shootings include the victim, right? Right, right. So... I'm going to show you, and then usually I'm also going to kill myself because I have no desire to take responsibility for my actions as well. So you wrote a letter to Sarah Palin, uh, Governor Sarah Palin, 
when she publicly, uh, (laughs) yes, when her son Track was accused of assaulting his girlfriend and she started blaming President Obama and her son's military service and PTSD for his actions. So she cited basically mental, quote unquote, mental illness. So what is the connection? And I thank you for the letter, by the way. I really appreciated that you spoke out when that happened. What is the connection between mental illness, which people like to use as a excuse that we're, there was a gap in you know mental health service or treatment or diagnoses and domestic violence? I am always appalled that that's the first place we go when we're looking at these mass shootings or when we're looking at someone who is committing abuse. It's always very disturbing to me because I think it does a disservice to those who have mental illness. And I certainly think that it removes accountability for those that are abusers. I met what I said in that letter. How dare you, anyone that removes responsibility from someone's need to maintain power and control and track, for instance, decided to do that by acting out and committing assault. Others, you know, hold a woman hostage or keep money from her or berates her or whatever it is. I think you deal with that issue first, which means I'm going to put you in jail because you've assaulted somebody. And then if they've got other issues, let's deal with that. No one is perfect. I just told someone earlier today that even victims and survivors aren't perfect. We have victims and survivors with mental health challenges. We have victims and survivors who aren't always the most pleasant people. But we deal with that as a secondary. And so I get very bothered when, you know, we hear these stories of, yeah, let's take their guns because they committed a mass shooting. And oh, by the way, we know there's domestic violence, but let's address it through through mental health services or mental health strategies. And I just become appalled. Yeah. And isn't it true that also survivors develop mental health issues, you know, through trauma from being abused? And so yeah. those are in a way acting out trauma symptoms. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're coming to our close of our conversation, Ruth. And every guest that comes on the show, I ask the engendered questionnaire. So uh-huh. basically, I have repurposed James Lipton's Inside the Actor Studio questionnaire. Uh-huh. And, I ha- and I have three questions that I ask each guest. Uh-huh. So the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? You know, the first thing that comes to mind from a personal level, I have my youngest granddaughter is three. I want 14 years from now, 10 years from now, for her to live in a world in which she does not have to worry about, am I going to be safe with this person? And do I have the ability and the right to say no? Do I get to make the own choices about my body? Because even when you're not allowed to make a choice about your body, that's that's a systemic way of violence against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's from the personal perspective. This, the, the more professional perspective is basically the same thing. We have people that are still suffering every day and we're doing nothing about it. And we're losing people. That's what's at stake. Whether they're enduring because there's no other choice for them. That's what's at stake. 
Second question. Uh-huh. What gives you hope? Ah, I always have hope. The glass is always half full. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I went to the summit and the United States of Women's Summit a couple of weeks ago and seeing these young women energized and full of life and saying, we won't take this anymore. I get hope from, from even those of my generation who say, you know, I'm not tired yet because nothing's changed. And as long as nothing changes, I'm going to keep going. I look at my three-year-old granddaughter and I have hope. Wow. That's great. I look to you and I have hope. Okay. And, and our last question what can we, and you don't have to answer all four. So just uh-huh. any part of this question, you're welcome to answer. Uh-huh. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop? This is to our listeners to um, be part of the solution. I love what you said about following the topic on social media and responding and saying, now a lot of people think Twitter, for instance, is this vacuum. It's this um, black hole. I don't think it is. I think people read Twitter and some parts of that has got to stay with them. So let's do more of calling it out. Let's, let's do it through social media. Let's do it through. There is nothing that prevents a citizen from picking up the phone and calling the New York times and say, you've got it wrong. That's not okay. I think if I had to choose what's less of, it would be less of waiting for someone else to do it and less of being so siloed and territorial that we were not creative of what the solutions are. I think that's, that's pretty much it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ruth. I've really enjoyed our conversation together today and I wish you the best of luck, especially this fall at your conference. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can do it. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuen. Thank you. Thank you.